0: Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. To let me know what you think of this podcast, or to suggest a future guest, please go to the contact page at nathanwhitlock.ca. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Alicia Elliott. Alicia is a Mohawk writer living in Brantford, Ontario whose essays have been nominated for multiple national magazine awards. She's also a recipient of the RBC Taylor Emerging Writer Award. Alicia's first book, the essay collection, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, published in Canada by Penguin Random House Canada, was a national bestseller, and was nominated for the Hillary Weston Writers' Trust Prize for Nonfiction. And it won the Forest of Reading Evergreen Award. The New York Times Book Review called that collection raw and unflinching. The Globe and Mail called it a tour de force, and Booklist called it required reading. Alicia and I talk about her upcoming first novel, about the slightly unreal sounding process of writing and publishing her first book, and about how she has handled the occasionally complicated reality of being a high profile indigenous writer. We also talk very briefly about the Vanderpump Rules Reunion. I feel like I've caught you at the last possible moment that I can have you on this podcast because you were actually on my list. So I have a long list of people that I wanted to approach as as guests. And I was thinking, like, we'll get to you. And I also thought, like, I'll ask you once there's a whole bunch of episodes and it looks real and it looks like a big, important (laughs) podcast and you can't say no. But then I heard the, the novel was imminent. You have a novel, uh, and then she fell, is Is landing September, what is it, the end of September?
1: Yeah, the end of September.
0: And this is June, so I thought, oh, I have to grab you now. Can you tell me just to start off a little bit about the book?
1: Yeah, um, about the new book that's coming about out?
0: About the novel, about the, the novel, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, the novel. Okay, um, so this is a novel that started as a short story. It was like one of the first short stories I wrote for my undergrad in creative writing, and originally it was- because I um, had my son when I got pregnant when I was 17. And I had him when I was 18. And I remember, um, even though I had like amazing midwives and everything like that, I remember feeling so disoriented in terms of what the actual realities were of being a mother, um, and especially being young and, and seeing all these people around me who, are, you know, are, going out and they don't have any responsibilities and all of a sudden i'm i i have to prioritize my child and so even just like bodily things i was like why why does no one talk about this everyone talks about you know oh it's so great to be a mom and all of Uh these things like that are very you know kind of yeah very twee and like these very like you know Oh, it's just going to give you so much life, so much meaning. But like, no one really talked about like the physical way your body is still recovering after childbirth. Or people wouldn't talk about like at some point being so tired that like you just start to cry when like your baby is crying again because they need to be fed again. And you're like, I can't do anything. Like, there's almost like this. Um, it's almost like it tears down your sense of self, especially the way that we talk about um, par- uh, the way that we deal with, I would say, parenthood now, like it's it's all very individual. Everybody deals with their own kids as opposed to like when things may have been more communal. And then it's like, okay, like an aunt can come in or grandparent and let you sleep or, you know, bathe or whatever, like those things aren't as common now. And so we have these like pressure boxes that that we place young parents and especially um young mothers and uh because of all the expectations that comes along with motherhood so when I was writing about it as a short story it was originally just kind of talking about the difficulties of young motherhood um and uh and then this it was a story that just never felt like it was done so the book now is um I would say it's multi-genre I wouldn't say it like is too stuck in any of the particular ones it kind of goes a little bit specfic it goes a little bit horror it's uh, I i feel like it's generally pretty literary um until a certain point in the book and then it shifts and so um anyways it's just about this uh this young woman named alice who uh, grew up her, her whole life on the res, um, on six nations. And she has a very complex relationship with her mother, where she feels like she has to kind of care for her because of a series of circumstances. And one day she meets this man who's like, and who they fall in love. And they're like, you know, she's like, Oh my God, he's so amazing. And they kind of have this kind of runaway romance where all of a sudden they're married. She's pregnant. She's moved off the reserve for the first time in her life into Toronto, into this, like, nice house in this nice neighborhood and all of this stuff. And like the loneliness and isolation that comes with that, especially when you have such a culture shock moving from one to the other, on top of which is this new baby on top of which is trying to fit in with all of this and trying to be a writer after for so long, being like telling yourself you can't do it because you're just never gonna make it. You're never gonna be in that position. And so then things start to kind of um, the pressures and all of that start to kind of come to bear, particularly because um, while um, she was pregnant, her mother died. So she's kind of feeling this loss and this guilt and everything is kind of coalescing into, um, you know, her all of a sudden communicating with things from that she shouldn't be communicating with technically and, and all of this. And it starts to kind of come down to bear so that's basically the the crux of the book that kind of moves from there that was a a far probably far too long of an answer
0: no absolutely not this podcast uh the whole idea of this podcast is to have writers talk when they're not in self-promotional mode when they're more out of like everything else in their life but I am totally giving you this space to like promote (laughs) the hell out of it I actually really very recently read a piece on a book site I can't remember the name. I think it was like Book Riot. Hmm. And it, it was running down like the, the five best indigenous horror novels that are forthcoming. And like it actually said at the top, like indigenous horror is hot. And it was such an <laughs> odd thing to read as like, wow, we're we're there? Like that's a, like, you know. <laughs> the other thing I'll say about that, about the novel is the idea of a book that's about a uh, woman's anxieties around her situation culturally and this clash of culturalization, uh, of class of, you know, uh, different cultures sounds really out of character for you. Like that sounds Mm. completely, I'm joking. That sounds exactly like the kind of book that you, I mean, (laughs) having read the essays, having read the Mind Spread out on the Ground, it's like, yes, of course, that's the book you're going to write. That is the novel you're going to write you became known for writing essays for your essays Mm -hmm. and what's astonishing to me is how quickly uh the process was where from my reading of it and correct me if i'm wrong your first couple essays started to appear in like 2014 2015 and then by 2019 you had this amazing book i met a mind spread out on the ground you'd won awards for essays and you got elevated to this spot, you were on Penguin Random House, you had like a mainstream publisher, you were elevated to a certain status uh, Mm -hmm. in in the literary world. While you were living through that, did it feel completely natural? Like one thing goes to the next, then it builds and it builds? Or did it ever feel like, where did this come from? Like I was just writing these essays Mm -hmm. for myself or to explain something. And all of a sudden, I'm being interviewed by 50 different people.
1: Yeah, so I think it was even actually faster because I feel like the first stuff I wrote was like very early on, and this was when I was still working full time at Starbucks, and (laughs) so like I had no time to do much of anything. Like I had to like make the time because like me and my partner were both working in these kind of like customer servicey type positions that were like that basically you work different hours all the time, you don't have a set schedule, and we're trying to also. Like at that point we were trying to like make space for our child to come into our house after living in Toronto for a long time. And, and, and at the same time um, he was starting school. So like, it was like a very, it was a lot happening at once. And so I was trying to be like, I can't work at this forever. Like, it's just <laughs> killing me um, in terms of like what it was taking from me. And so uh, you know, that was when i was like i really need to get serious about writing and um so you know i i remember as like a young writer i was just like i gotta i gotta be very serious i gotta like actually look at the people who are writing amazing stuff and look at the stuff that i i that like just hits me and be like how are they doing this and so like i started kind of having to like looking at things on a very like mechanical level in between all of this like other stuff that i was doing and so because it was so much that was happening all at once um i did get like an early you know piece in like i think it was briar patch magazine or like something right. like that yes. and, and and i had like an early piece on at the time Roxanne gay was running a literary website called the butter or yeah i think it was i think it was the butter um uh, that was um happening and i i submitted a piece to that. And so those were like the first kind of pieces that got published. One was more of like an article uh, on like um, Six Nations Band Council versus the Confederacy Council and all of that. And the other one was a creative nonfiction piece. And then from there, I was like, oh, okay, like I guess maybe I'll just, this seems like a, a, a way that I can better make money than writing short stories and trying to send them out and submit them. Um, and it seems like I'm getting this form faster than because at the time, like I was writing short stories, but I still found them very mysterious in terms of how they worked. And to me, when I was looking at essays, they made much more sense in terms of how I could use the form and stuff like that. So I think I just, it just like kind of took me by surprise that I liked it so much and that I took to it so quickly and was just like constantly checking all of the stuff. So by the time that like, um, uh, I had a piece accepted. The Malahat review had an all creative nonfiction issue. And I wrote a piece that was about, um, about being a young mother, um, a, a like a teen mom. Um, when I had all of these ideas of how, of the type of girl I was and then here, <laughs> here I got pregnant. What kind of girl am I? That kind of situation. And when I had that published, um, Uh, like I was really, really excited because I knew that that was like a good publication to be in, but also, um, I had really good mentors who nudged me. So like, um, right around that time I went to, there was the BAMS center used to run this indigenous program for emerging writers. And that was where I first met Leanne Simpson. And she, um, she heard me read from this piece that I published in the Malahat review And later when she was um, editing creative nonfiction for the all indigenous issue um, that Malahat Review was doing, she basically like messaged me and was like, Hey, I'm editing for this. You should submit something. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Oh my God. Like she was one of my idols. So I was like, Mm -hmm. I have to write something. Like I have nothing. I have to write something. And so at the time I was super depressed and I was like, well, I guess I'll, maybe I'll write about that and um that was the essay that became um the title essay of mine spread out on the ground but even then I wasn't like there was a point where I was like maybe I'm just not gonna submit and then she called she came back and said hey you haven't sent anything yet we only have like a couple like this many weeks left are you gonna send something and so I was like oh my god I have to write it so like I had to make time and like I'm so grateful to her for pushing me and like being like come on. And like, there was no guarantee she was going to publish it. But like, um, I ended up writing something that I was really proud of. And, uh, and then, you know, from there, things did move fast. At that point, I had published a few essays. Um, and then that essay in particular, got nominated for a National Magazine Award. Um, and other things were happening kind of while I was trying to Write other pieces like I was starting to write op eds and different things like that, and um, and so everything kind of moved quickly, particularly after that one gold at the National Magazine Awards. Then I had agents that were coming up to me, and I was like, What the fuck? (laughs) 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 Um, I was just like, Uh, yeah, I only have this many essays, I have like a couple short stories, but I don't know. And basically that was when, you know, I, um, I spoke to, um, a writer at the time, I Spari, who is, um, who has written a memoir and essays. And she was basically talking to me and she was like, so are you going to be writing like an essay collection? And it, for some reason, it just didn't click to me. Like I knew I didn't want to write a traditional memoir because that just was boring to me. I don't like Mm -hmm. the whole like concept of like, I was a child and then I was a teenager, an adult, and now the book is done. Like, I just hate that form. I feel like it's very boring and it it forces people, or like people feel, I think, compelled to put things in there, to fill things out that is boring. (laughs) And so I was like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. But she's like, well, I'm writing a memoir and essays. So like, maybe you need to think of it as essays that you are writing an essay collection of, and it will cumulatively give an effect um, and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting to me. Um, and so then, when I finally, when I did sign with an agent, they basically also were like, look, you're writing essays that are getting attention. You need to write like your first book should be a book of essays, and then we can come back and talk about other fiction afterwards. And so at that point, I was forced to sit down and write an essay pro- or like uh, like an, a book proposal where I'm like, mm, okay, right. what essays do I want to write? <laughs> and so then I'm like, which ones did I already publish other places that I can re pull into here? And so that whole process, um, you know, obviously like we we sold the book based on that proposal, but it was very much like there are essays that I proposed that didn't get written and then essays that I wrote that ended up getting added in after the fact. And so that was like a bit of a fluid process, but basically it was like, okay, I signed a book contract. I have like a due date by this time. So I need to sit down and do it. And I think because at that point I was so used to every single moment had to be accounted for. I like, I rushed into everything and was like, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. If I don't get this done, it's not going to happen. Like thinking all of these things that were not reasonable because I later found out that like people are late for their you know their first draft stuff all the mm-hmm. time that didn't occur to me I was like no I have to get this done and so like I I think I in retrospect pushed myself too much I was definitely burnt out um by the time that I handed in my first draft and everything but um like at that point that was how I operated like I was just like I don't have any time for anything else I have to do everything I have to or else like it's not gonna happen and I was so desperate to like get out of the circumstances that my family was in that like, I was just like, I have to go, I have to go, I have to go. And so I didn't even consider that like, it was a pot. I didn't even know what it was like to take a moment to breathe. So I didn't realize that I was gasping (laughs) this whole time. I thought that was normal that everyone's gasping this whole time. And so um, anyways, it was just like a very, once it happened, it was just very, very fast. And it was very, um but also I was like, well, I have to keep up. (laughs) Like, I have to. I, I don't have another option. Um, my perspective on that has changed <laughs> significantly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it was just very like, okay, well, I have to strike while the iron's hot, I guess, you know, and otherwise stuff will move on, and then I won't be able to like, you know, capitalize <laughs> on, on this right, or right. that and everything, right?
0: Yeah, I um, I had my first kid uh, when I was. F- fairly young I was 24 uh just about Mm. to turn 25 not as not as young as you not I wasn't uh in my teens I guess because I'm more respectable or I'm just a (laughs) better I just I'm just a better person fundamentally um but I had uh I remember having this real feeling of oh I actually have to write now and mm. I was, and I always wanted to be a writer and I wasn't, I was just kind of doing the odd thing. And I remember people saying, well, you'll never write now. You're going to have a baby around. And it seemed the exact opposite to me. I was like, well, now mm. I have to, because I either do or I don't like it. And that's all I have to do. Like I can't travel. I can't, you know, do all these other fun things. I have to take care of a baby and have a job and write. And that's it. It actually seemed much simpler. And the same as you, I thought, well, you have to do it by a certain time and you have to get your, hit your deadlines. My joke has always been that like, uh, childlessness is wasted on the childless Mm -hmm. people who don't have kids. They have no idea what those acres of time mean that like, that, you know, just being able to like, maybe stay up till three in the morning, reading a book and maybe get sleep until 11 and wander (laughs) down for a coffee and oh what do I do this weekend and you know I've never had since my early 20s I've not had that question of what do I do this weekend well how do I fill mm-hmm. my time it's like it's filled for me I, I yeah all those decisions are gone <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's interesting is and I have to say this and and you probably understand this because I'm sure you've are uh, uh an aficionado of a lot of like terrible movies which is that yes. if you said if 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 there was a movie where there was a character of a, who was wanted to be a writer and they were like a young mom and they were working at Starbucks and they wrote a couple essays and then suddenly agents started appearing and then they got a book deal, like you would watch that and you'd be like, that's not actually how that process works. <laughs> like that's so Hollywood, that's so corny. Agents aren't interested in like someone because they had a couple essays. So it's it is a pretty incredible... Thing that within this few years you went from in a sense it made you a kind of spokesperson. Did you feel that pressure?
1: The interesting thing is that before I was in the position of writing op-eds, I that was something I came into quite accidentally as well. And at first I was like, I don't know what I want to say. Um, uh, but it it quickly <laughs> occurred to me that like I do know what I want to say in regards to particular things. And um I'm very, very cognizant of how to construct an argument. But as I was like the first before I first did that, I was very aware of the ways that someone who is a particular type of indigenous writer can be tokenized and pushed onto a pedestal and made and like asked their opinion on everything. And mm-hmm. I witnessed, um, you know, people who are put into that position then think that because they were asked about everything that they had to give an opinion on everything even though they didn't understand necessarily what they were talking about they didn't go and do the research before making a well-articulated opinion talking about the histories of these things they talked about they did they used key terms that made it sound like they kind of knew what they were talking about and that they were saying something and it sounds good at the time, but then when you go back and you're like, what is this person actually saying? They aren't saying anything. And so I was very critical, like, and I seen this and I was like, this is wild. Like I had met some of the, some people who were putting that to that position and I saw firsthand what that was like and how they could dazzle, but then there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. And they were being put in these positions, like, because because the thing is, is that <laughs> the, these systems want someone they love the idea of representational politics because it means they can pluck the exact person they want. And what can you say now? That's the native person who's saying this. So, you know, that's the the native person says it. So why are all of these other native people not saying it? You know, like it. that's how it uses people, Mm -hmm. especially from particular groups. And I was very aware of this from the beginning. And so, you know, as I started to write op-eds and more opportunities came towards me, I was very much of the mindset that like, I'm not only going to write an op-ed on something if I feel like I'm saying something or adding something to the conversation that has been missed or that some people, someone hasn't said anything about yet. For all the pieces that I've written, I've turned down many pieces because people will say, like I had someone, for example, come to me and say, we were, we really want to talk about, or we really want to have an art, a piece about um, Indigenous youth in foster care. And I was like, okay, I have never been in foster care. Um, I can write about things from an, from like an outside perspective and and like go through the research and analyze and stuff like that. But I have not been in that position. However, I know a an indigenous writer who has been in foster care and they're very talented. And would you, is it cool if like I set you up with them and t- you talk to them about it? And they'll say yes. And so like, for me, one of the, that's like the stuff that happens in the background that nobody knows about because like, no one really necessarily needs to, <laughs> and so right, for me, with right. being aware of like what what is it that I feel like I can speak to, and when um, being aware of the ways that people are going to try to then position me, how can I then say no? It's not just going to be all coming to one. I actually have all these other writers that I know, and let's talk to them, and let's start bringing them into the equation, and like you know what I mean. So it's very much for me trying to trying to be aware of like am I the person to write about this? Or is there someone who could do a better job that also could use this opportunity? Because I don't need that opportunity to write about that. Um, I can write about other things. This person maybe can't, and this is going to be a good opportunity for them. So like, for me, that's kind of where I tried to kind of resist that because they're there. Everyone's gonna be like, well, who are we going to talk to? Oh, we should talk to this person. They've already published, not really having those um, networks that I can that I have created or that I try to create where I talk to different indigenous writers and know where they're at and know what kind of stuff they can speak to and where and, and everything and try to help them in that way. So like, for me, it's about just being aware of what I can and cannot speak to and also being aware too, that like, it's always easier for someone who looks white to automatically get more respect get more um you know get more uh, positive attention or, or or all of this stuff than like someone who uh, who is indigenous who has dark skin, who is mm-hmm. black, you know, like these, these are the things that I am also aware of where I'm like, oh, of course they would want me to talk about this. Not even considering what my actual politics are on it, but they would rather, because it's more comfortable for them than to like through these subconscious uh, like, I think not all of it is purposeful, but like, you know, all of these biases that sometimes are unconscious where they're not going to go talk to this person because they're automatically assumed just visually that I'm more on their side than, than uh, right, someone right. who who has deeper skin tones and stuff like that
0: you'll create um, that also, wonderful bridge between the yes. culture you'll, you'll be the bridge yes. that brings us all together and yeah
1: yes and like yeah. that is not my responsibility but mm. but I it is my responsibility to constantly make people aware of this so that they are like oh yeah we can't let that like be not addressed in this situation and maybe i'm not the person to speak to this and maybe it's someone else um who would be better equipped to speak to this who has just as important of things to say and that's how the tokenization works right so at that mm-hmm. point it doesn't even matter who is like you know because like i will say i i'm pretty like in terms of my my politics in terms of these things I'm not like the the person who's gonna pat your hand and say to you like, oh, you're doing great. Like, you know what I mean? It's great that you have an indigenous friend and like you did this thing and <laughs> and you you cried when you heard this story. You're doing great. That's that's not what I'm gonna do. <laughs> like I, I may be like, okay, good, good first step. Now let's talk about all these other steps.
0: It speaks to the phenomenon of the um and I'll use a really outdated term here the sh- the the really small rolodex that some media mm-hmm. places have where they're just like yeah. they have like three cards in their rolodex and they're like oh we have uh we have some muslim issues so we we have we have this one guy oh it's mm-hmm. an indigenous issue we've got two good we're great that's all we need to you know we will just keep back if they're not available we ask the other person yep it's and it's a weird it's also strange to me that someone would come to you with all of those issues like anybody who follows you on social media should know that, I mean, you talk a lot of shit on social media, (laughs) on Twitter. You're not going to be the, the, you know, the bridge builder with the distant sound of drums from a powwow. And you can speak in this like measured, very stoic way that we all need to just find our, the idea (laughs) that you are going to be the person who's going to bring that, that energy. It's also something that I find. And I, I find this in my in my day job. I work at Humber. I, I run a publishing um, program, and when I'm bringing in guests to speak to mm-hmm. the students, editors, publishers, you know, marketing people, I'm always looking for someone who's not straight white guy. So I'm I I do that because I, I'm a good liberal white middle aged straight white guy. <laughs> but the 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 problem I come up against is that I will ask somebody, even a friend, I have friends who are editors and I'll say, can you visit my class? And they're like, I'm serving on 12 different juries. Mm -hmm. I'm on 18 different like diversity committees. There's so much of that free labor going on because so many Mm -hmm. people are asking. So that's a phenomenon too. And you must be faced with that as well, where you're constantly getting asked, can you be on this prize jury? Can you be on our committee? Have you manage to kind of be uh in the same way that you say no but maybe this other person do you do the same thing with those requests or do you have more of a no I'm just I'm my time is full right now
1: well I've I, I'm definitely someone who had a very hard time saying no um for various reasons throughout my life and um so that's something that I am at this point very very cognizant of and um so if someone is coming to me with something I have to sit and consider whether I have the time for it, whether I have the energy for it, what this is going to be taking away from in my life that I could be focusing on otherwise and whether that's worth it to me. And so it, um, so I'm pretty good at that at this point. Um, uh, it helps that like, um, I don't have too, too much in terms of like people who are like I feel like this happens way more in academia probably and like different publishing levels and stuff like that where I'm not having to worry about that too much like to be blunt it's like okay well um uh I you know I was at one point very very on twitter and doing all of this stuff but I have since come to be like I'm going to step away from that. And so when you're not the person who's starting all of the fights and and everybody's retweets and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you're not the top of the list anymore in terms of being the person that everyone's like, we'll go to her because I just saw that she was saying this and this and this. And I don't like, well, I am thankful that like, you know, my use of social media and, and things that I spoke about on social media and stuff like that helped me so much in my career. I don't see the need to do that at this point, because at this point, I feel like it actually hurts my life um, in many ways. And so I've tried to like actively pull back from that. And as a result, there aren't as many people who are like, can you come and speak about this and that and that? So I don't really have to worry about fielding too many of that at this time. There was a point where people were, were doing stuff like that. And I had a hard time saying no, but then it was very much like it came to a point where I was like, I have to learn how to say no, or like, literally I will not get any sleep and it's going to affect my family and it's going to affect everything. So I need to stop. (laughs) And and part of that was like pulling away from social media because it gets to be very addictive. It gets to be very like, and, and also, you know, you have to be cognizant too, of like the ways that people perceive you as a result. So, you know um, if people are going to see you complaining about stuff on Twitter all the time, they're going to assume that you're a very aggressive person and they, they meet you and they're like, what the heck? You're not the same person. And it's like, well, yeah, of course I'm not the same person because I'm, uh, people are only saying something about something they have something to say about. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's not going to be those soft in between moments as much. Um, and I just found that it was more important to me to be mindful of what I'm saying. And, and I I'm at luckily at the point where if I want to write an op-ed about something, I have the contacts to reach out and do that. I don't have to rely on social media as much. So I just kind of leave that for like the new kids to kind of do that. And so that they can kind of use that as a stepping stone. Um, and then if they want to reach out to me and ask about like how to, you know, like, I'm pretty good about just being like, being cognizant of, mentoring and stuff like that and talking to younger writers and being like, just so you know, you don't have to say yes to everything or just so you know, um, uh, you know, this agent shouldn't be saying these things to you or like different things Mm -hmm. like that. So, but that's also like behind the scenes stuff. That's the stuff that people don't see. So, you know, I'm very, I, I care more about doing that kind of behind the scenes stuff where I'm helping people with things than doing the stuff that at this point to me it would just be for visibility. I don't need that at this yeah. moment.
0: Having said that, are you hoping that an editor will approach you to write a piece on the Vanderpump Rules reunion? <laughs>
1: Okay. I feel like that, that, that has been that I, th- I don't think anybody can write anything more about this at that point, but <laughs> if anybody had approached me and said, Alicia, we want you to do a recap uh, of all of these episodes for the season, I would have said yes. So-
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, literary review of Canada, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, I was very all about that. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I literally checked on Twitter to see if you were still on Twitter, because that's that's something that you have to check now. And one thing you had tweeted very recently was, and I'll quote it, it says, Oh no, I'm feeling the itch to start the next novel. Need something to distract me and procrastinate ASAP. <laughs> have you successfully avoided starting a new novel?
1: Uh, well... Uh- again, I, I had this idea for a while. Um, and so I already wrote a short story that was kind of like the start because I was like, I have this concept, I'm going to make it, or someone had asked for a short story. And I was like, I can try and use this as an excuse to start getting into that world. And so I already have done that, but I haven't gone back to it since. And now I'm just like, I think it's like, it's just, it's time. (laughs) But I also, because I, 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 like I do so much research. It's so stupid how much research I do that. And so little of it actually <laughs> <appears> <laughs> in, in any conceivable way in the text. But it's all just like, okay, I'm trying to get these ideas. I'm trying to get these ideas. And last time I, I think it was like I eventually I was like, I was like, okay, I can keep researching, but I feel like I feel like I have the like the the spark that's gonna be the start. And so I think I have the spark that's going to be the start. It ha- It's just a matter of me actually sitting down and being like, this is happening now. We're starting now. <laughs> and, and that's always, I think, a little bit intimidating because then now you have this big expectation hanging over you. Well, now I, ha- I started a novel. So now I have to continue talking about the novel in my head and like, uh, or thinking about it and, you know, all- it becomes a thing as opposed to just theoretical, right?
0: Well, maybe what would help was to maybe pick up a few shifts at a Starbucks. <laughs> and then it's then you're like, you can compartmentalize and you're like, today I have to work. So I can't work on the novel. Tomorrow I have a day off, have to work on the novel.
1: Yeah, actually, I may do that. <laughs> 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 they just, <laughs> they need like, people. Need...
0: <laughs> what Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukaszewski, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukaszewski.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.